reason for going back to verse number one is because the beginning of verse number five uh, starts with a conjunction. And uh, conjunction is uh, in the Greek, it's very similar to what is in the English in that it connects a, a passage of scripture together. So what took place in the prior verses is being connected to the following verses. The specifics of this conjunction, the word for, uh, the implication is that it, it's um, going to provide a reason for the previous information. Um, you might see this word also translated because. And so because of what is to follow, we apply what is preceding. In other words, we see in verse number one, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And then we go on to talk, goes on to describe that, be careful not to drift away, be careful not to neglect um, the word of God and the things of God. The reason for um, that is, is what is to follow. And we're going to see the because. Why do we not, why do we want to avoid drifting away? Why do we want to avoid neglecting the word of God? Why do we want to pay much closer attention to the things of God? Why is it important to do these things? This is, a, this is especially important as we read the following text because God's promises in his word often don't seem to line up with our reality. In other words, as you see down in verse number eight, the scripture says in verse number seven and eight, the Bible talks about um, crowning man with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under him. And then it says, now in putting everything in subjection under him, he left nothing outside of his control. So God put everything under or in subjection to mankind. And then he goes on to say, however, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. So in other words, we're, what has been promised is not seemingly what is reality. Now, what we uh, see in God's word and what we expect possibly from God is, is, uh, is not being played out in, in life. And uh, life is full of difficulty and full of hardship, especially for Christians. And uh, with that being the case, I don't know if it's this way for you as it is for me, it becomes easy to begin to drift when we see or expect certain things from God and they, and they don't come to fulfillment. Um, possibly maybe you pray for something, you pray for healing, you pray for deliverance, you pray for something for years and years and years, and you begin to doubt God's ability or perhaps doubt God's healing power, and then you stop praying because you're not seeing the fulfillment of those things that we expect. We see this in Matthew chapter number 24 when the servant of the, 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 servant of the house, um, his master goes away on a journey and his master tells him, I will, I will return again, but he doesn't give him a time frame for it. And after a long extended amount of time, the servant begins to question whether the master is going to really return. And in questioning the master's return, he begins to live a, a riotous life, begins to live a sinful life, a wicked life. Because the promise of God became in doubt. The promise of God became in question, and therefore he began to live selfishly and to live for himself. This is a fundamental difficulty for Christians because as we look at the world around us, we see great difficulty, we see great persecution and hardship, especially for those who are believers. 
Christians face the greatest persecution that is around the world today. And it's not getting better for Christians. The persecution and the difficulties that Christians are facing is simply escalating. Which causes us to question the fact whether or not all things have been put in subjection to us. Is this promise that God made, is it a reality? Is it true or is it not true? And when we, as we question that and we have to come to a decision, we have to come to a decisive point in order to determine whether or not we move forward in confident faith in the Lord or whether or not we slow down and move backwards in doubting the Lord. We see this in several places. Think about this. How about Daniel in the lion's den because he prayed to God? David hiding from King Saul after having been anointed by God to be king. Elijah hiding from Jezebel after defeating 400 prophets of, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. The three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace after obeying God by not bowing down to another God. The Jews in the wilderness after having been promised Canaan, the promised land. The apostle Paul in the New Testament is stoned He's imprisoned, he's shipwrecked, he's beheaded, and he's done all of this takes place because of his preaching of the gospel. And you can see all of these hardships and all of these pains and all of these difficulties, and we begin to question possibly the sovereignty of God, but in many ways we begin to question the promises of God. Whether or not these promises are ever going to be a reality, or whether or not God keeps his promises. And we know, according to Titus, that Jesus cannot lie, or God cannot lie. He must keep his promises. If you want to read in your own time, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, chapter 4 as well, it gives you a, a pattern in which the Apostle Paul suffered and, and the things that he went through as a, a disciple of Christ, as a, a person who was sharing the gospel with people on a regular basis. This was the pattern of his life, the suffering and the difficulty. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, we are told, Indeed, all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So we see in this passage of Scripture what the apostle, what the apostle or the author of this book is saying is that because of the things that are going to follow, we must pay close attention to what has been said to us. We must pay close attention to what has been said to us. So there are three things in this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the, the promise, first of all, the problem, secondly, and then the solution, okay? The hope that we can have and um, that hope found at the very end of this passage. Let's look to begin with at the promise found in verse number five. And, uh, and thereafter, the Bible says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, and has been testified somewhere in, um, in Psalm chapter number 8 is what he's referring to here, which is a, a direct quotation from that passage. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, 
you left nothing outside of his control at present. We do not see everything in subjection to him. The first part of the promise that we see is found at the very beginning. He says that it is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. The first part of the promise is that there is a future kingdom. Okay, There is a kingdom to come. If you go back to chapter number 1 and verse 8 and 9, you see that kingdom being described or explained. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, hath anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. He also describes this same event in verse number 10 of chapter number 2 when he says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. And that glory is the same, uh, is referring to this, this kingdom or this state of humanity, this, this state of the earth, the state of the world. That the Lord is bringing many sons and daughters to this kingdom, to this, to this status, to this condition. He's transforming us or he's changing us and he, he's preparing us for this, for this place, for this new kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. It's not, it's not the way the world is now, but it is the way that the world will be. It's what the Lord is, is accomplishing through his death and resurrection and continues to accomplish, accomplish through his indwelling Holy Spirit and ultimately will fulfill or complete with his millennial kingdom. And then the Bible says that the, the new heaven and the new earth. There is a new kingdom that is to come. It is not of this world. Oftentimes we see many promises in the scripture that are, that are completed or fulfilled, not in this life, but are completed and fulfilled in the next life. It is those promises that we're looking forward to their fulfillment. If we lose sight of the fact that they're built around a coming kingdom, if we lose faith in the fact that there is a new kingdom that is to come, we begin to get, doubt the Lord's promises and, and then digress from following him or living a committed life to him. Let's look at a few things that are told to us about this kingdom. In chapter 1 and verse number 8 and 9, it's told to us that it is Christ's kingdom. That it is Christ's kingdom. In other words, he is the ruler of this kingdom. He will sit on the throne of David and he will rule on the throne of David for a season and that his reign will be a reign of righteousness. In other words, righteousness will rule the earth. No longer will unrighteousness or sin have a dominant place in this world. Satan will be bound hand and foot for a thousand years for, the, um, for this kingdom, the, the millennial kingdom. But ultimately, for eternity, Satan will be cast into a lake of fire. He will have no influence on the world. So we see, first of all, that the kingdom that is promised is Christ's kingdom. It is, it is Christ's world. We see in chapter 2 and verse number 5 that it is a future, a future kingdom. It is a kingdom that is to come. The, the word world here is, is, comes from a Greek word that means an inhabited world. And we think of the world as being the cosmos or, 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 or the atmosphere or, or the earth and the planets and those types of things. This is more referring to the inhabitation of that world. There is a kingdom that is going to come that is unique and different from this kingdom that will be inhabited by mankind. It will be inhabited by us. There's a kingdom that is to come. It is a future kingdom. It is an inhabited kingdom. It is Christ's kingdom. 
Chapter number two and verse number 10 tells us that it is a glorious kingdom. In other words, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, what we are told about the glory of this kingdom is that the men who will be in that kingdom will be, will be existing in glorified bodies. We will not just be, um, it's not just referring to a place, but it's referring also to a condition in which mankind exists, in which mankind functions. That we will, be all, we will all be changed, we'll be transformed into the image of Christ and we will exist in, in, in his likeness. First John chapter number three and verse one through three describes this. When we see, when we are in Christ's presence, we will see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is and then we will, because of that promise, we will begin to live out that promise here in this life. So it, it's not just a place, it's a condition that God gives us. It's a, it's a new bodies, it's glorified bodies. It's a glorious place. He says that he brings many sons to glory. When we think of that again, we often think of it as being a place, but the, the inference is, if you go back into verse number seven, is that when God created men, he created them with glory. It says that he crowned them with glory and honor. And when, man, and when mankind sinned, which we'll get to in a few moments, mankind forfeited that glory and that honor. And Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, death, burial, resurrection, he is going to restore us into that glory. It's a glorious kingdom. If you'll turn with me to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, we'll see a few details about this kingdom as well. It's a peaceful kingdom. It's a peaceful kingdom. Isaiah, beginning in chapter 4, we'll look at a few references here. It is a peaceful kingdom. No conflict. No war. No fighting. No sickness. No illness. None of these things are going to be a part of this kingdom. We would love to see that here in this day and age. And, and, and in all honesty, Christians, believers should function in such a way that is at the very least expressing that we believe this is going to become a reality. But the kingdom that the Lord will rule and the kingdom that the Lord will reign will be a, a peaceful place. It will be a totally, completely peaceful place. If you can think of the Garden of Eden, you can, you can possibly begin to grasp a little bit about what the kingdom of the Lord is like. This is what we look forward to. This is, this is the promises that we have that keep us moving in the right direction in this life. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, if our hope in Christ, if our hope is only for this life alone, we are of all men most to be pitied. But our hope is not in this life alone. It is in the next as well. Let's look at a few thoughts here in chapter four of Isaiah the Bible says, in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by the spirit of judgment and by the power and by the spirit of burning. 
There will be peace. The, the Bible talks about in verse number two, there will be after the Lord deals with our sins, which is, is mentioned uh, in chapter number one, there'll be, there'll be peace, there'll be a flourishing, a beauty and a glory to the land that the Lord has given, a, a fruitfulness to that land. Chapter number 11 of the same book, if you want to turn there as well. Just follow along with me if you would. Verse six. The Bible says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. We see in the previous verses the, the fruit of the land, the, the harvest of the land, the, the, um, the produce of the land is, is good. When we remember in the Garden of Eden, what was the curse on Adam? That the land would produce fruit by what? By the sweat of your brow. They would bring forth thorns and thistles. And every, in other words, the land will give forth fruit, but it'll be difficult. It's going to be hard. We see in Isaiah 4 that it's not going to be difficult. The land is just going to give forth fruit. Here we see the animals. In the garden, the animals were, were at peace with each other. Here we see this is going to be restored. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young, with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fatted calf together, and the little children shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra and the weaned child shall put forth his hand at the adder's den. They shall not be hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of God as the waters over the sea. See this peacefulness, this harmony, this unity of the whole world. This is what we're looking forward to. This is the promise that God has made us. Chapter 35. We not only see peace with the land itself, we see peace amongst the animals. In chapter 35, we see in verse uh, 1 and 2, the Bible says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of God and majesty, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the, nebel, the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In a haunt of jackals, when they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. We see the, again the harmony of the land. We also see the harmony of mankind, the, the healing of mankind. The Lord Jesus Christ promises us these things as a part of the future kingdom. In your time, if you'd like to read Revelation chapter number 20 and 21, you'll see these these. Um, these promises in their fulfillment, chapter 20 deals with the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand year reign of Christ in which these things will be, will be, will be relevant, will be real. And then we see in chapter 21, the new heavens and the new earth, which these things will be eternally established. So the first thing that we see in our, in our passage here is that 
the promise is, is that there's a coming kingdom. There's a, a new kingdom that is going to come. The second part of the promise is this, that man will be restored to royalty in this kingdom. In other words, mankind will rule in this kingdom. He describes it in verse, in, in verse five, he says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So he's making a statement here that angels were not put in authority, are not going to be put in authority in the new world, in the millennial kingdom or in the eternal kingdom. Angels will not be in authority. Angels will not be ruling. The reality of this is that angels were never created to be in authority or rule. They were created to be servants. If you go back even to the Garden of Eden, God made man and God said to mankind that you will have dominion. God created us to be authoritative on the earth, to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over every creeping thing. God placed us in the earth to have dominion, to rule. He says he's going to restore that. The question is very interesting. Well, let's go on. We'll look at the question here in just a few moments. We see in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 3 that man's dominion will not just be over the world, but man's dominion will be over angels. 1 Corinthians 6.3 tells us that man will judge angels in the end. God created mankind in Genesis 1 to have dominion. God is going to restore mankind to that dominion. And not all of mankind will be a part of that, only those who are believers we see that God is preparing us to rule he says in verse number um, in verse number 9 but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor you'll notice that that crown with glory and honor is very similar to the crown with glory and honor mentioned in verse number seven. The difference is, is that crown with glory and honor in verse seven is mankind in creation. Crown with glory and honor in verse nine is Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn. He is the firstfruits of many who will follow after him. He says this, that he is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering that he has suffered in his death. And then it goes on to say in verse number 10, for it was fitting for he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. Again, in bringing many sons to that state of glory and honor again that they had in the beginning at creation, bringing many sons to that state, he should be found the founder of their, he should be made the founder of their salvation perfect through what? Through suffering. The Lord is not just making us perfect He's making us perfect through suffering. The suffering is the means by which the Lord is perfecting us. And it makes sense that he was made perfect through suffering. He was, and, and, and don't, please don't get this wrong. Jesus Christ was perfect his entire life. The, the word literally, literally means mature. He was matured through suffering. He was prepared for being the ruler of the world through suffering, through difficulty. And it was in many ways a representation to us of how we would also, he was the forerunner, if you will, to us of how we will become prepared for ruling in this world. He says in Revelation 23 and verse 21, the one who conquers, he's speaking to the churches here, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne. 
as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if you endure, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Other versions translated, if we suffer, we will also reign with him. If we would deny him, he will deny us. Romans 8.17 says, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then Revelation 5.10 says, and you have made them a kingdom of priests. Some versions translate it this way, and you have made them kings and priests to our God, that they shall reign on the earth. There's a kingdom that is coming, and God is going to prepare, God is preparing mankind, believers, to reign in that kingdom, to restore the glory and the honor that man was created with, to restore that back to where they reign on the earth as they reigned on the earth in Genesis chapter number one and two. So we see the promise to begin with. Now what is the problem? The problem is simple, it's threefold. Um, it begins, and it's really explained to us very well in verse number eight. The problem is, is that we're not seeing these things happen. The reality of the fulfillment of these promises is becoming very doubtful as we watch the world unfold around us. The promise of God that the world will one day be restored and we're going to sit on the throne, or we're gonna sit on thrones with the Lord, we're going to rule and reign with him, is a promise that doesn't seem likely. Even if we look at Revelation chapter number four and five, it describes um, the elders sitting around the thrones. There's many thrones. When it describes those realities, it's difficult to, to, uh, to see as a reality because our reality doesn't match up with that reality. This is why it's so important to determine whether or not God's word is reality or the world is reality because they're always going to be in conflict with each other. We can't, we have a hard time accepting these promises because of the difficulties of our reality. The promise is Jesus will restore earth and man and they will reign and you must trust the gospel to see this fulfilled. Reality is angels currently reign on the earth. Just trust the law. And angels are a representation of the law. Just trust the flesh. In other words, it's, it's, it's one option or the other. You can trust in the invisible. You can trust in the impossible. You can trust in God doing something that seems like it's an, it, would, it will never happen. Or you can trust in what you see. You can trust in what you touch. You can trust in what you can control. This is why it's difficult to believe these promises because it's not, it's not seemingly a reality to us right now. Let me give you three thoughts on this. Number one, mankind is not getting better. Mankind is not getting better. The reason why in verse number six, as well as in Psalm chapter number eight, which is where this is a direct quote from, the question is asked, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit or care for him? The reason this question is asked is because man in his fallen condition has no value. Man in his fallen condition is the enemy of God. So this promise makes zero sense to somebody who has fallen in their sins, who is desperately 
who is, who is desperately in need of deliverance. This, this makes no sense to that person. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you would even consider him in this way? And, our, and this is the reason why in the very next verse he points back to our created condition. Because it's not our, our fallen condition is the problem that we have. Our sinful condition is the problem that we have. It is our created condition that we need to get back to. And the only way to get back to God's creation is for Jesus Christ to come and bring deliverance. Man is not getting better. Man is getting worse. Genesis 6 and verse 5, the Bible says, Every imagination of man's heart is only evil continually. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us that man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And Romans 3 and verse 10 through 23 says, No one seeks after God. There is no one who is good. There is no one who is righteous. No, not even one. Mankind is not getting better. If the promise is that someday mankind is going to be perfected through in their flesh and they're going to rule once that takes place, mankind looks at that promise and says, that's impossible. That will never happen. And they're right. It will never happen. If we're looking at mankind, we're looking at the flesh and the fallenness of mankind, there is no hope in ever ruling and reigning on thrones with the Lord. Mankind's condition is not getting better, it's getting worse. All we have to do is look around us. We see man's depravity growing. We see man in bondage to temptation. We see man in bondage to addiction. We see man in bondage to the flesh. And we don't see it getting less, we see it getting greater. G.K. Chesterton says it this way, Whatever else is or is not true, thing, one thing is certain. Whatever else is or is not true, one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. Instead of having the mastery, he is mastered. Instead of ruling, he is enslaved. Instead of being characterized by strength, he is characterized by great weakness. Instead of being characterized by glory, He is characterized by shame. F.B. Meyer says it this way, sin hath reigned, as the apostle Paul says most truly, and all who bow their necks beneath its yoke are slaves, menials, and cowarding subjects in comparison with what God made and meant us to be. When we compare ourselves to the Garden of Eden, there is no hope within ourselves. There is no chance of us in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own might to somehow convert ourselves to being able to obey the law in such a way that we can return back to our created state. We cannot purify ourselves. We cannot cleanse ourselves. It is an impossible task. That is the message of angels. It is the message of the law. And it wasn't meant to transform or change anyone. It was meant to condemn and to prepare mankind to meet the one who could change them. Mankind is not getting better. Mankind is getting worse. And if you read Romans chapter number one, it will tell you that mankind will continue to get worse and worse until the Lord is ultimately done with mankind. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3.13 
while evil people and impostors will go from house to house, or from, not from house to house. When I read what it actually says, you'll laugh. <laughs> I, I need to put my glasses on. <laughs> from bad to worse. Where do you get house to house from bad to worse? I don't know, but I did. From bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The first problem is simply this. Mankind is not getting better. It's getting worse. The second problem is this. Angels are ruling on the earth. Good angels and bad angels. I mentioned it to you earlier that angels were not meant to be in authority on the earth. The reason why angels took authority on the earth is because man surrendered their authority to angels. Man bowed the knee to Lucifer, and when man bowed the knee to Lucifer, he placed himself under the authority of angels. Now we live in a world today where angels are in authority. It is a delegated authority, but it is a real authority. They have a certain level of dominion on this earth that they were never meant to have. So while, while man has lost his dominion and his, and his power and his authority from the fall, the angels gained it. And they reign today. This is why in verse number five, he makes it very clear that the Lord did not mean for angels to be in rule and they will not rule in the next kingdom. They will not rule in the next kingdom. Second Corinthians 4, 4 says, in, the case, in their case, the God of this world, who is that? That's Lucifer, it's the devil. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory, the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Ephesians 2 and verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. In John 12, 31, now the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The problem is, is that angels are in charge today and what angels are promoting is angels are promoting self-sufficiency. They're driving us to self. Good angels are battling against this. Bad angels, you, you have the, in, in, in Daniel chapter number 10, you have that conflict that's taking place between the demonic forces of evil and the good forces of good, and they are ruling. We are not to be listening to them today. We're to be listening to the Lord. That is the context of this passage. The Lord is better than the angels. Number three, what is the problem? First of all, Man is not getting better. Secondly, angels are in control. Thirdly, the earth is increasingly the earth is increasingly hostile towards mankind. The promise is, is that at some point man will be restored to dominion over the earth. But yet we live in a world today where animals are attacking and killing more and more regularly. Plants are becoming more difficult to produce and proper harvest. Be properly harvest because of weeds, thorns, and other reasons, flooding, all of these different things. Nature is becoming more and more disastrous, being reported daily. There's more and more relational conflict taking place each day. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 24. Listen to what the Lord says in Matthew 24, speaking about the end times. He says in verse number 7, 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. The world is becoming more and more hostile towards humanity and its authority and its control. And we would, we would say it's difficult to believe that one day it will be submitted again, but it will. F.B. Meyer says this, We see not yet all things subjected to him. His crown is rolled in the dust, his honor tarnished and stained. His sovereignty is strongly disputed by the lower orders of creation. If trees nourish him, it is after strenuous care, and they often disappoint. If the earth supplies him food, it is in tardy response to exhausting toil. If the beast serves him, it is because they have been laboriously tamed and trained, whilst vast numbers roam the forest glades, setting him at defiance. If he catch the fish of the sea or the bird of the air, he must wait long in cunning concealment. So degrading has he become that he has bowed before the objects that he was to command and has prostrated his royal form in shrines dedicated to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. This is where we are. This is the problem. This is the state of humanity. This is the Romans one state where they worshiped, instead of worshiping God, they worshiped the creation. We bow before that which God hath given us to be dominant over. This is the problem that we have. This is why it's difficult sometimes to believe God's promises. Let's go on. Lastly, this morning, what is the persuasion? In other words, what keeps us motivated as Christians? What keeps us persuaded as we see a world where the earth is more hostile towards men, men are, more, men are becoming more corrupt and angels are becoming more dominant? When we see that type of a world taking place and we see it in direct contrast to the promises of God, what is the hope that we have? What can we stand on to say, I believe that God's promises are true and I believe that God's promises are going to come to pass? There is only one thing that we can look to and know that God's promises are yes and amen. And here it is. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. This is where the conflict is. But we see him. And what you'll notice is, is the the. The focus is not on us for, for hope that all of these things are going to become true. The hope is in someone else. It is in, the Bible says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the, because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone the only hope that we have that God's promises are going to come true that we can look to each and every day of our lives and believe in the promises of God enough to drive us and move us closer to him and not further away from him is the existence and the work of Jesus Christ God's 
Son. 1 John 3, 1 through 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Or verse 2, and what we shall be, what we, what we, um, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him like he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. In the end, the only hope that we have to persevere and press on is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is the Lord Jesus Christ in three ways. Number one, as our progenitor. In other words, he's the one who has gone before us. He has uh, uh, patterned a way. He has pioneered something. He has established a way by which others will follow in his footsteps. The Bible tells us in many places, specifically in Romans 8, for our study, in verse 29, for we know he, for, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That statement is a promise that there will be many who will follow in his footsteps. The Bible tells us in Galatians that there will be many more that will follow in his footsteps than those who, that will not follow in his footsteps. It's a wonderful promise from the Lord. If you look at chapter number two and verse number 13, it says, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. He has gone before us. He has laid a foundation that in which we will follow in preparation for dominion on the earth again that we have been promised and that we look forward to as followers of Christ. He is the progenitor of these things. He is the one who established a way in which we can be restored to him. Not only is he, is he the progenitor, he is also the pattern. By, by focusing on Jesus Christ, we see one, we see a man who has control again. We see a man who is dominant again. We see somebody who is 100% man who can walk out onto the front of a ship and reach out and say, peace, be still, and what, is, what do the waters do? We see that in a man. We see Jesus Christ walking out on a ship and saying, peace, be still, so that we know that there is one who is in control. There is one who is dominant, who has dominion again. We see him doing it to sickness in the Gospels. We see him doing it to death in John 11, where death submits to him. The winds and the waves submit to him. Sickness submits to him. Demons submit to him. Animals submit to him. He fills nets with fish that just moments before had no fish in them. That wasn't a, a natural thing. It was a, it, was a, it was a miracle. He tells Peter to go down to the water and a fish is going to come up and give him a coin. Because that fish obeyed what the Lord told him to do. We see Jesus Christ as a pattern, as an example. Food is plentiful when it comes to the Lord, and it doesn't even take, there are no thorns and thistles that he deals with. There is no sweat. He's like, here's five loaves and two fish. Go feed 5,000 people. 
The food submits to the Lord. He is in control. He has dominion. So when we're thinking about whether or not we're going to have dominion, here is one, Jesus Christ, a man, fully man. We don't want to move away from his full humanity on the earth to say he's fully man and yet he is in complete dominion. He is called the second Adam. So the things that Adam failed at, Jesus Christ succeeded at. He is a pattern to us of being in complete and total control, yet being fully man at the same time. His disciples struggled with this in Matthew 8, 27, when he calms the sea and the storms. Their question is, what sort of man is this that even the waves and the sea obey his voice? Jesus Christ is the pattern. He shows us that there's there's a promise that's going to be fulfilled and mankind is going to rule. And he set the stage and moved us in that direction. The last thought this morning is this. Jesus Christ is our provider. It is in his death and resurrection that we have hope of one day ruling and reigning on the earth again. He is the provider of this dominion. It is in him and through him that we have hope of this righteousness and of this control. Romans 6 tells us that his death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. So we died with him. We will also resurrect with him. And when we resurrect with him, we will be, he will live through us. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30 tells us that he will be for us righteousness, wisdom, and strength. And then ultimately he will restore us to a state of glory and honor in which we will rule and reign on this earth for at least a thousand years and possibly thereafter. So how do we keep this morning from drifting and neglecting Jesus and his word? We must remember to keep our eyes on Christ. We must focus on him. He is the one through which we have the hope that the promises of God will come true. We have the example that the promises of God will come true, and we have the means by which the promises of God come true. If we can stay focused on him, he will do what he's promised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the work that you did on our behalf. Thank you for your grace and saving us and your promises to use us and to glorify us in the sense of bringing us back to the state in which you created us that we might properly glorify you. We pray that you will bless um, this time together this morning that uh, will be pleasing to you and give us hope and uh, passion and the boldness that pushes us forward in Jesus Christ's name.